0: Welcome everybody to the Wayne Nicholson Show. Hope you're all doing well. Today we have on a really cool cat. His name is Mike McCall. We just came to the conclusion that uh, both of us have known each other now for 20 years. I can't believe how fast time goes. And it's a bit of a shame that we're both so busy these days that uh, it takes a podcast for us to catch up. Mike, it's been way too long. (laughs) It has. It's been a while. I know. Like, we've got to go back. I was gonna ask you about politics.
1: story goes that I'm a socialist in my character and my makeup, uh, part of that comes from being born in Glasgow. Um, I moved here when I was 12, so this, these dulcet tones are actually kind of semi-Australian. Uh, I've been here about 30 years now. Um, growing up in Glasgow, it's kind of like you go left, and then you go left again, keep walking left until you get to the left, and then go left again. So it's kind of natural propensity for me to be involved in those sort of politics. And um, I'm very much involved in the union movement, um, particularly through the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, which is the union that represents journalists and actors. And then um, being involved in the union movement for about 20 years, about probably five or six years ago, I thought, well, if I want to make a bit more difference, I need to kind of go into the tent, as it may be with um, the political class, and actually, sort of start chatting to them right. because ultimately they're the ones that are going to change the laws or, or introduce the laws that can make a real difference for the membership um, that I was representing and still represent. And so uh, I got involved with the Labour Party that way. And um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, like the last couple of weeks. There was a sort of sense that. In Australia, there would come a time for change from the previous uh, administration or three administrations, and um, that never quite happened on the day. So uh, here we find ourselves in the start of a a new dawn of Scott Morrison.
0: Scott Morrison, do you know… How good is Scott Morrison, by the way? (laughs) I know, I know. Because you work in education, does that affect, you know, because I know uh, with uh, Central TAFE, with TAFE, North Metropolitan, any government that comes in you know, there's changes all the time to the education, you know. Does that affect you guys as much?
1: Um, probably not. Just to give a bit of context, um, I work at a, a private Catholic university uh, called Notre Dame, which uh, people listening overseas we go, you've pronounced that wrong. I haven't. It's called Notre Dame. In Australia, it's called Notre Dame in America. And in France, it's called Notre Dame, but with a French accent instead of a Scottish (laughs) accent. And um, essentially, um, it's the same sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, franchise Mm. uh, coming out of America. Our Board of Governors is um, connected to their Board of Governors. And there's a sense that um, they're teaching um, the students at university within what we call the Catholic teaching tradition. Um, The basis of that is not a kind of doctrinal um, you must be Catholic to understand what's going on. The basis of it is, is the idea uh, It's always used is um, you have a great big feast at a table and it would be much more interesting if you invite a whole bunch of people who aren't like you to that feast and you chow down and sort of talk shop about what's going on in the rest of the world. Share stories. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's it. And there's always going to be uh, for the Catholic people involved in the organisation that sort of sensibility where they can only go so far. But in 99.9% of cases, they're going to find a common universal kind of humanity that they're going to be able to discuss no matter what background, whether you're secular, whether you're religious, from the different religions. Yeah. So it's it's a nice environment in that sense. That it teaches a bit more tolerance than perhaps a more doctrinal uh, institution might teach. Um, and so with Notre Dame being a private institution, it's able to forego some of the, the vagaries of, switching governments um of government policies come in but we're still very much under a sort of qualitative um uh microscope like when it comes to the um the education itself <coughs> because it has to be Australian standards uh, and that standardization goes across all universities uh, and most registered training organizations as well mm. so um, yeah, so we, there is that sense that when the government changes you have to sort of see where it's going to go uh, but we are very much unto ourselves. And one of the nice things about a private institution is uh, like Notre Dame, um, which we have three campuses of in Australia. We have one in uh, Fremantle, one in Sydney, and one in Broome. Mm. One of the great things about it is is that um, they're able to keep numbers down. Uh, and that's a big thing. It sounds like, you know.
0: Keep numbers down.
1: Yeah. So we, we've got about 6,000 people at our institution in Fremantle, about 6,000 in Sydney. And then kind of, you know, maybe a 100 up in uh, Broome. And so having smaller numbers means you have smaller class sizes. Yeah. It means you can really focus on the students. And one of the big things that happens in Notre Dame is we always seem to rate really highly in student satisfaction. Um, we became number one this year in Australia. Oh, well done. Yeah, uh, so for our overall graduate um, experience. Mm. Uh, and in WA we're number one in terms of employability. And part of that is being able to spend time with the students, say particularly in film and theatre where I teach, and say, what do you want to do? What, where do you want to go with this? And so you're able to actually call up people in the industry and say, I've got a student who'd be great in sound or great in editing, can you take them on? And so we're able to do that. Yeah. Whereas in other institutions that I've worked in, it's not always the case. Like The last institution I worked in, which I, I won't name, it has 40,000 people. Attending it, and that institution is absolutely fantastic. I'm actually, I actually went through it myself. But the problem is that with 40,000 people, you're not going to always be able to get to know those uh, folk really well. Yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah. that's right. Now, uh, I was just thinking as you're saying all of that, how long we've uh, we've known each other for about 20 years. For 20 years. Well, I was just asking. I was asking my wife yesterday. I was thinking, you know, I've known Mike. You forget how long we've known each other. Um, and it, you just said it was about 20 years. I remember you and I talking about being hungry, mm. as in literally hungry. Yeah. Uh, you were studying at uh, NIDA at the time, and we were both working at Fox Studios. Mm. Um, poor. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sydney was expensive. It was. Did you ever think, um, hey, you know, in 20 years, we're going to be working in education back in Western Australia?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I ever saw myself doing... What I've done because I've done quite a lot of education now. I've, I've went, yeah. I, I, I used to say education was something I did when I was unemployed. I now have a PhD, which doesn't say a lot for my ability <laughs> to, Dr. To, to actually hold down a job in the film or the theatre <laughs> industries, if that's the case, if I finally yeah. got to that point. But the thing with it is, is, um, with the education, it kind of always ran alongside, I was always fascinated. Uh, with the craft itself and, and mm. where, where I started from. I started at um, University in Perth when I came out of school and it was, I had a great time and I learned a lot. did a lot of theatre, did a lot of writing and then when I finished, I kind of made the natural progression into bar work uh, as most actors <laughs> yeah. do. Yeah. And then after a year, I did a couple of wee things um, in friend shows and whatnot and then I thought to myself, I really need, I think, more training and... Um, more access to whatever this industry is because I'm coming from a very working class background. I don't actually understand mm. uh, at that age at, at nineteen what I'm involved with, to be quite honest, because mm. I'm living in Perth, which is the most isolated city in the world. There's no mobile phones. there's no internet. um you're back then. back then, yeah, uh, there's right. it there's really there's nothing that connects you. Uh, even to the east coast of Australia. I mean mm. my whole concept before I went to NIDA of Sydney was the Bridge and Opera House. That was it. I had no other um image in my head other than that. And I just I could imagine it'd be this sort of like big city, whatever that happens to be, I had no no real understanding. So when I finished um well after that first year out from my first degree, I thought, well I'll apply for NIDA because a few of my friends had applied for NIDA and um I didn't even realize what it was. All I had was a booklet with Miranda Otto on the front, <laughs> and I knew who Miranda Otto was. And then inside, there was like, Oh, Mel Gibson had done well. So, Mel Gibson, before he kind of went a bit off the rails and yeah, but yeah. bit, bit unfashionable to be quoting, he was a big star. And he'd just done uh, Braveheart in 1996. So, yeah. I was like, Up the Scots, that's excellent. Yeah. So, he was a good one to look at. <clears throat> I knew, um. Steve Bisley I was familiar with, who was uh, in The Big Steel and whatnot in the 1980s and, and Mad Max. And um, and then there was one other person I knew, uh, this woman called Kate Blanchett, who had just done a film called Elizabeth, which was like our first film. And I thought, oh, she's not too bad. She must have learned a few things. Yeah. So I, I decided on, based on that, that I'd apply and I auditioned for NIDA and I got in. And uh, the first time, it's a bit of a fluke. I think I don't know how I did it because when I turned up for the audition, they
0: needed people.
1: Now. They, did, they did people. <laughs> so for th- those of you who don't know what NIDA is, it's like basically that time is about two thousand people audition a year all over the country, and they take about twenty people. So it's y- you're quite you're lucky if you get in because it's very much on the day. Another th- qualifier I would put is. If you're that good, you don't need to train. You just go out and get a job. So I always I always <laughs> want to make sure that people are aware of that, that you get taken in the drama school not because you're the best. It's because you're the best on the day in mm-hmm. terms of what they see as you being a potential student of that institution. They don't take you because they go, oh, look, they're amazing, they're going to be the next big star. Because otherwise, why do you need three years of training? So always keep that in perspective. Anybody that's thinking sure. about Uh, drama schools get like you can go out and you can do it yourself but what happens is by going to a drama school you cut down probably about 10 years worth of industry experience I would say because it's so intense for three years what you would take uh, the, the amount of time you would take to learn that amount of uh the craft would probably take you 10 years of working non-stop and there's very few people that can walk into the industry and work non-stop so I think that's the big thing uh, about the big, the big sort of like bonus of going to drama school is you get that training. So, went to NIDA, went to NIDA, um, ended up getting a job at Fox Studios with we Wayne, and uh, and it all went downhill from there. And uh, <laughs> I finished, I finished NIDA, and then I went off, yeah. and I came back, I ran out of cash. What, uh,
0: what year did you get back to Perth? 2002,
1: because I finished 2001. Oh, okay. But one of the problems that happened, and, and, and I, I, I didn't realise this at the time because it, it was happening around me, was that um, we finished November 2001. September the 11th happened in September, obviously, of that year. And um, that really affected global markets, what people were investing mm-hmm. in. So very quickly, like the world had sort of... Um, consolidated the money and went let's just see where this is all going to go because it's all a bit hairy and so we were graduating out into that and as a kid you know i was like 20 i just turned 24 it was my 24th birthday i was going i don't know about any of this stuff i'm just going why is nobody hiring me and then eventually after about six months i'd I'd done a couple of things i directed my first show in sydney at the old fitzroy and i thought right i better go back to perth get some money yeah. And so I did that. And then once I got back here temporarily, 17 years ago, um, <laughs> I was in a situation where I went, there's a lot to be had in Perth. Like yeah. Perth has actually got a really good, healthy theatre scene.
0: So you came back S- and uh, I don't, let me say what you just said. A lot of people don't, you know, they go to a place and they sort of, what can this place, you know, like is the industry here? Is it here now? Instead of sort of going what you just said, um, there can be a lot to offer, you mm. know, it may be not Sydney, and we're going back to 2002, because yeah, two, yeah. I, I came back in 2004, Yeah. Um, and we went to, when did you go to Sydney? Ah, uh,
1: 99, so, 99. End, end of 98, we came
0: 99. Yeah, it's different, so different. It's now. a different world. I know, Yeah. I know, going from Perth to, to the biggest, one of the biggest cities in Australia.
1: Yeah, and I always feel strange talking about it, but it, the internet really did make a difference. Mm. It, it, it's like somebody in the turn of the 1900s sort of going, Oh, the penny farthing. Yeah. I thought that was good. And then somebody invented the car. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it feels, it almost feels like contrite to be talking about it that way. But to be able to do what we do now in terms of the like acting, be able to do things such as uh, self-test, mm. stick it on your phone, send it off oh to I an agent, know. that was not to be had. uh I auditioned for Underbelly a few years after I got back. I actually had to go to Sydney to do the audition. Like, yeah. that was it. Yeah. Because they said, we quite like the idea of you being in it. And um, all your
0: agents are like, don't, you know, come back to Sydney. Yeah, and yeah. Don't, don't be on the other side of the country. No,
1: because you're out of it. Like, once you leave Sydney, you're out of mind, like, out of sight, out of mind. And so that was hard. And what then happened is I started to go, I, I need a bit more control here over my career. So I started to work as a director. Uh, I'd already sort of dabbled in it. And I thought this is really interesting to be able to build something, uh, to initiate uh, projects was really interesting. Um, and alongside that, I started to realize that part of being a director is educating to some degree, yeah, because you're enlightening people to what's going on around them, you're of course. probing a bit more analytically into yeah. the text than perhaps you do as an actor. That's not to say you don't as an actor, but you generally concentrate just in your part. Mm. Um whereas as a director you're looking at the whole storytelling t- process and like how yeah. that is done. Uh not just through the performances but through the, the mise on scene and uh lighting and everything. Sound, the whole that. And yeah, 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 the
0: underlying themes in the visuals. Everything and, because mm.
1: that you've got you got to sort of sit where an audience sits um and think, what am I doing to harness their understanding of the plate? Yeah. So I did that and so I ended up doing an honors at Curtin University. In performance studies looking at emerging playwrights really enjoyed that. I didn't know that, yeah. I did that, so <laughs> I looked at Sarah Kane. If those of you that know Sarah Kane, a British playwright, looked at how the media affected her, um, her rise, uh, and also her, her fall. Um, then I went and did a master's in um, screen, uh, at the W Screen Academy, and uh, with film directing as my major. And the reason for that was I, I thought, well. I need to understand this medium of film if I want to work in film. And that's the best way to do it. So I did that. And then at the end of that, I sort of rolled um, into a PhD, um, to be quite honest, because they were given out a scholarship. And that (laughs) appealed to me. And then after a little while, I went, I need to actually start working on this now. And um, and that took a a while, maybe maybe eight years, but I don't like saying that out loud because it makes me feel a little bit sick when I say it out loud. But I ended up looking um, at the Mike Lee process and how you can um, work with other voices in the community. Mm. Uh, In my case, I was working with African-Australian voices Um, and how you can work in a storytelling capacity as a playwright uh, and as a screenwriter without actually... Misappropriating those voices, so it's all very convoluted. If you're interested, go and check out my PhD. You'll find it online yeah.
0: somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it did take you a while. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's great that you finished it in the end. You know, yeah. do you remember the 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 time like w- before I got to know you? Like, when did you get to Australia from Scotland?
1: I got here in
0: 1990. Oh, did you? Yeah, uh, and it's the that's the year I met my wife. Uh, 1990. Yeah, it seems so long ago. Was it twenty nine years? Twenty nine years. Twenty nine years. Yeah. I can't believe it.
1: What's interesting is though that she hasn't aged a bit, whereas you look. Terrible. I look like
0: an old like Gandalf. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's me. That's me. But <laughs> all right, Michael, play it that way. <laughs> no, um, uh, what what got you into? Because you and your brother, because mm-hmm. your brother's a writer.
1: Brothers, is a writer write and an actor. Yeah. yeah,
0: and an actor. What was it?
1: Oh, for me, what was the seed? The seed. The seed is the idea. Okay, you're going, you're going deep here. Okay. Well, I've so, never, I've yeah, never asked yeah. you this before. So I, this is the way I see it because I reckon I talk to people around me and they say we knew you'd be an actor or something like that. They, they, they pin it back to my childhood and. Being kind of outgoing and things like that. I I don't know if it was because I know I was really shy. Um, I would crumble. I uh, really would. I remember being uh, having to do a talk in year seven in Scotland and getting up and the way that my fear of public speaking would manifest was in the giggles. And so I would just okay. end up laughing, like, I, I remember <laughs> having to talk about it. Strangely enough, I did a project on Gallipoli about six months before I left for Australia. i never heard of Gallipoli before this. And I got up and I started reading it out and I was just in stitches and the teacher went off her head as only a Scottish woman could, thinking I was making fun of what was going on, but I just had lost it and I was making the whole class crack up because I was laughing. You were laughing. So I got to Australia and I thought, keep a low profile. And then I got to year nine, I thought, I need to I need to come out with my shell because in Australia you do all these talks all the time. Australians are I think a bit more confident, um, in that sense, the same way Americans are to quite the, confident. To the Scottish. Uh yeah, really? because 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 when you're at school you're getting all these um like sort of presentations you have to do. You don't do that many back in Scotland. They might have changed now, this is going back to the eighties. Um, but there was never this sense you had to stand up and talk mm. I, th- I think because we we're all kind of destined for factories and things like that they didn't <laughs> want us getting too confident so the um okay I, I got to second year of school in Australia and I thought I need to get more confidence I think I'm going to take drama and my parents were like why are you taking drama I like, do something like decent and I said no I think I need to do this to prove to myself that I can get up and speak in front of people mm. so I went to the drama class that was a confidence thing oh it was huge I was because uh, people don't know this now because people don't know me go that's not you in any way, like, I have absolutely no fear. Like, I actually feel more comfortable speaking in front of 10,000 people than I do (laughs) any other place. Um, But the one that happened was, I got up on stage, and uh, it was in a little drama room, I went to a school called Greenwood Senior High School, it was now college, and um, they had rostra on the floor, and it was like old, sort of 1970s green carpet. And I I sat in the chair and I was I'd said to the the, the group I was working with that I don't mind doing this but don't make me speak. And they were like, Okay, well you just (laughs) you just be this figure that kinda hovers around like I I think it was the point of father or something. And I went and put the chair down and being an idiot that I am, I put the chair where the two Rostra meet. And then I sat in the chair and I'm quite a large man and I've always been kind of a large man, like even Mm -hmm. when I was twelve, I was a large man. And I just I was sitting there and I started to feel myself sinking, really, really slowly <laughs> into the ground. And what happened There's the two legs went in between the rostra. Oh so no. I'm just thinking, and there's an audience watching us, and there's probably only about like 15 people there. They're in absolutely howling, <laughs> laughter, like crying, because they think I've done this on purpose. Yeah, yeah. It's just this really low, and I'm kind of looking around like, you know, mortified Jerry Lewis kind of look, <laughs> kind of going, what's going on? Like, and not understanding what's happening. And then I kind of rolled off the chair because it was like an all wonky angle. And at that moment, I stood up and I went, I I like that laughter. Yeah, you like yeah. I liked that. Like that was okay. I, I can deal with that. It's and a I, drug, it becomes a drug. It was bizarre. And and that I note that as being the first moment wherever I went, that was cool. Then what happened is the following year I ended up with this kind of fantastic teacher, uh, Peter Pickett. I still keep in touch with. He lives in Tasmania now, he doesn't do drama anymore. But mm. um, and he he actually said to my mother in year twelve, "Your son Michael, lovely guy, never be an actor."
0: Is that right? Yeah,
1: I, I remind him of mm. that whenever I see him. Every sort of ten years when I see him, I remind him of, of saying that. But the um, I think that may have driven me on a little bit as well when it was my final year. Mm. Yeah, just saying. You can't do it, and I've always been somebody who goes, "We well, can if you if you apply yourself." Yeah, but that scares me because that means maybe my entire life has been based around proving Mister Pickett wrong.
0: I think I think it's <laughs> you're more yeah. I think that's pretty common. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people will know those uh, remember those voices, high school teachers, hmm. parents. Yeah. You know that uh, will give you that advice that no, it's you, you can't do it, and you either listen to that voice yeah. or you get strength from it to be able to go ahead and start uh, applying yourself in that in that way. Definitely. I was gonna um uh I was gonna um come to that after when I was watching the show on Netflix at the moment on uh, the assassination of Gianni Versace. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a really good show. It's nine nine parts. Uh, I think it's nine episodes. One of our actors is in it. Uh, he yeah. plays one of the the lovers, love interest of the serial killer, yeah, who killed Gianni Versace. But I remember um, you were saying it's this one, you know, it's that moment, uh, my moment for laughter. It it was laughter, but it was also being laughed at. Yeah, and it was about me giving a presentation at school. In primary school, and I had this thing about dinosaurs. And I was going to show my dinosaur, and and I had it in a box. And then the dinosaur fell over, and and it all oh, you know, no. broke apart. <laughs> and everyone started laughing. Um, and all I wanted to do is crawl inside the box. I actually yeah. made a show about seven years ago based on it for a theatre company. Yeah, right. Um, and um, so what happened was I got up and I started to talk about this um dinosaur that used to visit me at night through my window and then everyone went quiet mm-hmm. and then it went it was part of the show yeah they thought i was it was all part of the show not me dropping the dinosaur and and um at the end of it they all wanted more and then you know when it came to monday the next week uh, story time you'd talk about your weekend um i never used to get up in front of the class never wanted to be in front of people or a camera yeah. And, uh, but it wasn't about being in front of people as it was telling a story. So next week I went back and started talking about the next adventure of this dinosaur and me. Yeah. And, um, I remember it was that and my grandfather used to tell me stories when I used to get home. I used to, he used to have toast and jam ready for me (laughs) and he used to smoke this big pipe. And, um... I used to come home and one of my friends, uh, his name is Michael DeCosta, uh, he got hold of the stories too. He loved the stories. So he used to come back. I used to think he was just coming back for the toast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Free food. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. it. And no, but we used to sit there and listen to my grandfather talk about detective stories. Mm. You Know, like the old Dick Tracy detective stories and yeah. stuff, and it was from that it was. And my mother was an avid um, vid- she loved movies, yeah. And it was the old VHS players, and she, there was a special where you could get 14 VHSs per week for a special yeah. price. And we used to watch movies all the time, so I sort of grew into you know, I love storytelling, um, mm. but I never saw it, you know, I went into. I worked in an office when i left and you know went the way that everybody expects you to go earned a lot of money when i was younger i I worked for a i guess um a woodside offshore petroleum Um, but i was just so unhappy you know and it's interesting to see um uh what is the seed that drives people to in a certain direction and i love talking about that to different people like some people my question is to people all the time to figure out if they are happy doing what they're doing is I always turn around to them and I say, would you get up in the morning and do what you're doing for no money? Mm. You know, it's a real, you got to sit there and go, would you get up every day and do what you're doing for no money at all? And it's funny because Mm. as soon as you say no money, Mm -hmm. it really then, it then makes you weigh it up and go, well, actually no. I'm yeah. oh, fuck that, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to do this for no money. Uh, and sometimes people go, yeah, like I, I spoke to a, a, an electrician yesterday, he teaches, he's got a passion for electricity, you know, he's, yeah. um, but yet a passion for teaching. And he turned around and I didn't expect him, he said, yeah, yeah, holy, yeah, I uh-huh. get up every day and I get a buzz from teaching, seeing that, you know, quote, spark go off in <laughs> my yeah. students'. It's interesting to speak to people, you look at what they're doing now, mm. and you think, what was the spark? What, what was the spark that sort of drove you in that direction? And a lot of the times it's people don't know what they want to do. You know, they finish high school and they don't know what they want to do. They're forced to go into university, so you've got to pick a subject, yeah, you yeah. know? Um, but, you know, I was watching this uh, assassination of Gianni Versace, mm. and when he was young, Uh, you know, he was this young little, uh, you know, gay kid at school that used to get teased because he loved, his mother was a dressmaker and he used to see her sketch. And so on his spare time, he would sketch away and do his thing. And his mother pushed him and his mother turned around and said, you know, if you've got to do what you love, but it's going to be hard Mm. and people are going to get in your way and it's going to be a hard work. It's going to yeah. be a hard journey, hard work, but the payoff is great. Yeah. So if you want to sketch, you've got to do it. So we're going to make something. We're going to make a dress now, you yeah. and me. And he was like, I can't do it, you know, because he'd yeah. only sketched before. Yeah. Now he's got the chalk on the thing. But, you know, you find with people like that, that have that mentor, someone, yeah. somebody that believes in them yeah. when they're young. At around 11, 12 years old, it makes a huge difference. I think so. And then there's people that don't have any of that and there's people that get told they can't do something. Mm. That can also be a trigger to drive them as well or people just step back into the shadows. And I always am interested in talking to people about was it something. Uh, Like you said, Mr Pickett, you remember him for specific reasons. You yeah. Know? And you haven't thought about him much before, yeah, yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So um, tell us about Mr Pickett.
1: So Mr Pickett, he was actually a formative influence in quite a few people um, that I know are still involved in the arts. Um, though he would probably disclaim that it was anything to do with him. Um, but he was this sort of force that popped up when we were about 14, uh, year 10. Um, and he walked in and he was just this, massive personality he he was into theater sports uh he brought an idea of improvisation everything was fun it was just when you went in his class you were going in a different world it was no longer school it was just this other place and i think the thing with mr pickett is he championed and i I often talk about this idea to my own students you need to find a champion he championed us all he said you can be the best person you want to be if you're prepared to sort of put yourself out there and so I learned, I think, in his class about risk-taking, about not being afraid to fail, um, because failure is a, a major driver for me. Uh, it sounds like a strange thing to say. No, it's not. But I, I think you have to sort of take a step back sometimes and go, I'm going to learn through failure. And I think in the world we live in just now, and I find that particularly with my students, I don't know if it's changed. I think it must have changed. But there seems to be this sort of, like, pressure to succeed and I go, but you've got to follow along the way. No, nobody ever got anywhere uh, overnight. And I think a lot of younger people are a bit afraid of failure, as though somehow that's the end of the journey for them. Mm. When I say that's only the beginning of your journey, that's that's what you want, because mm. you're going to realise what you need to improve in. Mm. And coming out of high school, um, I mean, even Mr Pickett, mean, even said to my mother, you know, Michael, nice guy, never be an actor. And, and and so it's like at that point, and that was at the start of year 12, I went, oh no, because I've just told my parents. I, it was like almost like coming out the closet uh, mm. and going, having to sit down with a, like a, a fitter and ton father and a mother with expectations of a son's going to go and do something amazing at university. And going, I think I want to go to university, but I think I also want to be an actor. And I don't know how we're supposed to do that because there's nobody in the family with any arts background. And what's been strange is my brother's also gone the same direction. Um, and he had Mr Pickett as well, and I think he sort of looks to that character as well as being somebody who drew of him.
0: Was that Mr Pickett here or in Scotland?
1: That's Mr Pickett here oh, at okay. Greenwood High School, yeah. He's now in Tasmania. Um, he sort of moved out of drama. The last time I talked to him, he was working with special needs kids, uh, which was fantastic. And I can imagine the energy brought to us at that at that stage in our lives yeah he's bringing that to the special needs courses that he's working in so whoever those kids are i think they're very lucky uh to have him.
0: i think every teacher hopes you know that their their teaching has that an effect Mm. because i think uh, we all remember those teachers that um that made a difference Um, mine was a social studies teacher I remember my dad used to be a baggage handler for Qantas, uh, the airline, and we used to get cheap travel here and there. Mm. And um, my maths teacher pulled me up in front of the class and started, you know, lambasting me in front of everyone saying, it's going to be the worst mistake of your life. You're leaving for five weeks and um, you know how much work you're going to miss. And my social studies teacher was walking past the door at that time and at the end of school, uh, she came in and she said, Wayne, can I see you for, you know, after school? And I thought, oh, God, what have I done now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> again? <laughs> and uh, she took me aside and she said, look, I heard what Mr. Duncan was saying to you. And I was, oh, just went, oh, God. And she goes, don't listen to him. She goes, yeah. travel will be your best education you'll ever, ever get. Yeah. So I think it's a wonderful idea. I think you've got a great opportunity here. Um, I think, you know, you'll have a wonderful time and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I'll never forget that. Yeah. i never forget that, you know. Yeah, and it's important, <clears> I think,
1: <throat> to have those champions with insight that can see that you need to hear, and they might not even be aware of it, but they can see in that moment in time you need to hear a certain thing from them. Yeah. And they need to be that person to kind of step forward. And I think that's a big part of um teaching us, something I find them on, uh, teaching the... There's been points where i've seen a, a student that have gone i need to tell them like a home truth right now yeah or um, i need to not tell them that home truth but i need to suggest that they start to think about certain aspects of their life um because they're really talented and they've got mm. a lot to give but they're getting pressure from home uh, yeah. maybe to go in a different direction but you can see you can see that kid and you're going but, but you can fact, see the conflict in them as yeah, well. Yeah, you know? but you know that in five years' time they're coming back this way anyway, so yeah, you you may as well give it a crack now. If you want to be a filmmaker or be an actor, do it now. Yeah. Because you can always go into any other job from there, Yeah, but this is your time to kind of... Because really if you it don't, it's
0: going to get harder and harder.
1: Yeah, and you see it, and I'm sure you've seen it as well, like we, we get mature age students coming in, which are fantastic because they bring all this life experience. Yeah. But you're then meeting somebody who's in their 50s um sometimes even older maybe in the 60s 70s have gone i want to be an actor and they still can mm. but they've lost a lot of time um uh, because i think with filmmaking and acting part of the journey is your own journey it's it it's the life you lead because that informs you as an artist yeah and if you sort of go well i'll put my I'll, I'll go and live another life and then come back to that life at the end because then i'll have a bit of money and i'll be a bit more secure That's not really the artist's journey. That's not the artist's way. The artist's way is to kind of start off. You're learning your craft
0: while you're evolving. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely.
1: it's Something that really came home to me when I was doing my PhD was when you write something that's quite extensive like that, it's like 80,000 words, and you kind of get lost in it for years. One of the things you start to realise is a lot of the time what you're writing is about yourself. Of course it is. And and you're not quite sure how that happens, but then about halfway through you suddenly go, this is me telling the story of my journey
0: well that surely that's what an artist does
1: i think so i think so but in academia yeah. i didn't expect to find it in academia that was a, the strange oh, okay. thing mm. um i'd found it in acting um but it I was t- what
0: you were writing about too it was it was yeah.
1: yeah but you take on roles and you sort of find yourself in those roles. like yeah. you, you sort of suddenly go oh this is this is my connection to this character yeah um because maybe i'm not a serial killer but there's this bit where you kind of go, oh, they just want love right now. That's that's what they're looking for. But they're a very mixed up creation of like evil that <laughs> <laughs> needs to be eradicated from yeah. the world. But if we were to go back and look at their past, we would find that. And that's the connection you make. Um, as a filmmaker, it's usually in the story, mm. um, you know, something about the story that speaks to you. And that's going to end up in the angle in which you um, enter that story from.
0: The challenge for me every year, and I'm finding it getting harder and harder every year, is developing a voice within the students. Mm. So um, for those that don't know, I do teach teach at a college uh, film directing and I also teach um, marketing through social media. But every year what I try and do is, We begin by i talk about oedipus rex one Mm. of the oldest stories and why we remember a story like that two and a half thousand years later and i delve into theme well how important theme is and theme is something that it's an underlying message you have as a storyteller yeah that is in the story that you're visualizing and you're projecting out there so you have to develop a voice like who are you in Mm. this world You know we've already got other people but who are you it's very hard for students or younger people to look inwards first and then outwards because they you know the poor guys they're getting um they're getting pummeled by information like yeah. every second of the day, you yeah. know, mobile phones, Netflix, uh, YouTube, uh, Insta- are like constant, you know, information. Yeah. It's very hard to decipher who are they within that. Yeah. So the exercises, it's just what you said. It's like, um, you know, you're starting to have a journey within. You're starting to reveal more of what's in there. Yeah the more you're researching, all right? Mm. Well, what we do is I I have to do it in a very subtle way. So what I do is I give them the techniques, so like visual techniques of what lines are. Horizontal, vertical, diagonal, implied, you know, these sort of lines, organic lines, what they mean. Then mise-en-scene, like uh, subject setting, composition. So they're learning the techniques, but then I turn around and uh, one of their assessments is Romeo and Juliet all right? Three acts. You've got love, conflict, tragedy. You've got to now tell love in one photo using lines, mise-en-scene, composition, subject setting. Mm. But you've got to go in. When was the time that you experienced true love? Mm. Was it with a pet? Was it with your parents? You know, Mm. what was it? Your first crush. You've got to look at that, what you feel like, Remember that time. How did it feel? And then use the techniques of lines, mise-en-scene and composition um, to construct one photo. And then you've got to write why you took that photo. Then conflict. Then tragedy. So it starts, the first few weeks starts with them learning the techniques. But it's surprising how hard a lot of them find -hmm. find that. Because, you know… Film and acting sometimes for a lot of people is a way to escape yeah. into somebody else. Because a lot of times, well, I'm surrounded by actors a lot. They're afraid of who they are. It's yeah. a lot easier to escape into another character than to be themselves Yeah, and confront who they are. So a little example is get an actor to talk about, like talk to a camera, like a vlog on camera for YouTube. Um themselves talking about the hardships and going for auditions and and uh you know what they've done and talking it's super hard for an mm. actor to do that where you think you know they're used to being in front of cameras and the amount of actors that don't do that and use the platform of social media to be able to promote who they are yeah their their flaws their failures their hardships because i think acting is an industry based on failure yeah you know like y- your decisions are always up to other people your, you know, the goals of you getting on film and getting into theaters, auditioning, and, you know, you have to please other people. Yeah, yeah. Filmmakers, we have to please the producers, the funding bodies, the studios, you know, that sort of a thing. So it's a constant. You can't not be familiar with failure. No, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> but the students um, having to look inwards before they look out yeah. and tell that story. And it just, that's the first exercise. Then it goes, then it keeps going, then it keeps going. Yeah. And then you find, um, what I'm finding is at the end of the year, they've not just learnt a little about the craft of directing, they've learned more about themselves. Yeah. And they're more comfortable with themselves, who who they are. And I think that was, I tried that about two years ago and it worked. Yeah. But each year I'm finding it harder and harder. You know, kids have built up these walls around them. Mm. And they've been hurt in primary school and when they were young, so they build a defensive wall, yeah. a defensive brick, a defensive brick. So they can't get hurt anymore. And also, um, you know, medication is a, is a bad thing. Yeah. Because they're not learning how to deal with rejection, how to deal with flaws, failing. Yeah. It's, a, you know, it numbs the pain. Yeah. So they never get used to, like, what was the lesson I learned when I failed during that time? Yeah, yeah. And then sit there and go, oh, that's why I had to fail. Because the next stage of my life, I needed that to be prepared. Yeah, yeah. So it scares me. It scares me how much, um, you know, kids now, I feel sorry for them. For, like, I often think, God, I'd love, like, I think this is one of the most exciting times ever. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, look at us. We're sitting here in my living room, like I said. Yeah. We're talking. And yet this could go out to the rest of the world. Yeah. yeah. We never had that opportunity before. I was trying to tell the students the other day when I shot f- my short films on film, <clears throat> the only chance of exposure was getting into a festival. Yeah. And even then it was hard to get in.
1: And a lot of the time you had the situation where, when I look back at some of those films now, they're not the best films ever made because your whole concept of time has changed. Yeah. And that's something I realised the other day is I was watching um, Reality Bites, uh, for those that might remember that Winona Ryder film from 1998. yeah. yeah. And it's, horrible to watch and the stuff that's in it i still connect to but it's
0: nostalgic yeah mm. but
1: the, the, the what i experienced back then is not what that film is now mm. and it's because this whole concept of time has changed and how you use your time so for kids today everything has to be quite instantaneous yeah uh whereas i think there was a a longer game when i was younger and particularly when i got started in a, a craft it was this idea that it might take 20 30 years and one of the things that keeps you going is that you have a story, mm. and and the problem I find a lot of the students that I work with today I go, "What's your story?" and they go, "What do you mean?" Yeah, and I go, "But you must have a personal connection here to something you want to say about the world because this is going to be a really long and painful life, yeah, <laughs> for you if you don't have something personal. It can't yeah. just be, "I want to make." avengers 5 or whatever it happens to be which is fine you can't mm-hmm. you can go off and do that it's a great aspiration to have but at the same time to keep going what's going to keep you going when you wake up in the morning what's going to be your motivation to stay within a craft that might be actually really challenging and challenging to the point where you don't end up at the end of your life looking back and going that was actually a really great life where i lived in a mansion and i had Lots of really amazing experiences. It might be that you're living in a one-bedroom sort of flat by yourself with no family. Maybe if you're lucky, a cat or two. And a toaster. And a toaster, that's it. it. And that's all you're going to have at the end of your life. What you will have if you've truly set out as an artist is you will have the satisfaction of knowing you told many, many great stories and you gave a lot of people a cathartic experience. Yeah. But at the end of it all, you, if you're not comfortable with that idea, and it goes back to what you were saying about how would you feel about doing it for no money, how do you feel about the idea of doing this type of job for your whole life and not necessarily leaving the kind of legacy yeah. that maybe somebody like Stan Lee or, yeah. uh, or somebody like that would leave behind, that's right. you know? Cause, that's right. Because for most people that's what's
0: going to happen. Yeah, and, be, and being below middle class. Yeah, yeah. And still being, you know, I I coined the term, uh, the creative curse. And what it was, is I used to talk about it all the time. And, um, you know, like when you're young, you're led to believe, you you go to school, if you do well at school, you go to university, you can get a good job, get good money money and you can be happy. Um, But then you become a creative, you're a creative. And at school, you're doing things creatively. And then all of a sudden, you start to lose time doing those things. Mm before you know it, five hours goes past and you think you've only been doing it for half an hour yeah. to an hour. I, I think mm. that is one, that's one thing that is that makes you realise you're doing something you love, is losing time. Yeah, right? yeah. But what happened to me was when I was writing, I f- felt totally content, Yeah. happy. And then when I came out of it, even short stories, I thought, you know what? I've never felt that way. I've yeah. never felt the way I did when I was in that world. Yeah. Translating what I was seeing and feeling on paper. Yeah. It was my first love, writing. But then I was conflicted because now I'm thinking, now I've got to study subjects that I don't particularly like mm. to get into university to study something I don't know Yeah, in order to get good money to make me happy. But I'm happy now. Yeah. And so <laughs> when you get older, you start to go, you know what? I don't need this. I don't need that. I just have to escape on the paper yeah. and the writing. And it's a conflict because you do need money. Yeah. You need money to pay bills or survive, yeah. get food, you know. Yeah. But yet you could easily just escape into your writing. Yeah. Um, and I find that to be the creative curse. Like you find something early in life mm. that you're totally happy with. And then you start to realise, you're going, I don't need money to make me happy. I can just do this. And as you get older, life starts to come down on you. Yeah, (laughs) The capitalism starts to come down on you. you, But then you start to think, you know, I need to buy food and Mm. I need to do this. And I always, that was my tug of war. For years, that was my tug of war. Because I suddenly, all those rules and regulations of, this is what you have to do to be happy. Yeah. And then, as a creative, you find it early, yeah. Before you even reach any of those stages, you sit there and go, "I don't think I could ever be happier than when I where I am now." Yeah, I mean, your brother probably have a a say on that too. My brother,
1: um, my brother, um, young man called Stephen McCall, Mm. and um, he's uh, been a writer for many years. He went to the W Screen Academy, studied screenwriting and then went to NIDA and studied playwriting under the uh, legendary Stephen Sewell, uh, who many of you would have come across uh, who have watched Australian drama, uh, films like The Boys. Uh, oh, yeah. that would be a notable one. And um, one of the things about my brother is that I really admire he's He worked for the last six years making sandwiches in a small bar in Sydney. He's just actually moved back to Perth. Um, to continue his writing relationship with his uh, writing partner, um, Maziar Lahutie. And what's been great about them is watching the dedication they have um, towards a craft. And what's been great watching my brother Steve is he's just uh, won a big competition. Um, the the Hollywood Blacklist competition that was done um, in Perth. I Sorry, it was done in uh, Australia for the first time this year. And basically what happens is you... Send in a feature film script. Um, he'd written one with Maz, and um, they go from 400 entries down to 100, down to 10, down to 1, and they won it. Oh, wow. Yeah, Well done. And so what now happens is that Steve has uh, a contract with Warner Brothers to Fantastic. write a feature film script. Have I not told you this? I was told no, this, this no, is all because I'm, I'm looking at your eyes and going, sure, talk no, to this. Not not no, this. No, no. So he won that with Mazelle. Well done. So he's doing well that. done messed Yeah. And he's got um uh and now he's got a Hollywood agent. So he's with the same agent as other uh Perth creatives that have done quite well recently. Um Zach Hilditch, Ben Young, people with like that, they've got the same agent. And um the feature film that they won it with isn't the one that Warner Brothers want, so they've actually started looking to option that out. And yeah. it looks like they've just managed to do that. I can't talk about it because that's their, yeah, that's yeah, their sure, business. Sure. But but they've done quite well. And, um, and Steve's got another uh, piece that he's adapting for a producer uh, in uh, Perth called Melissa Kelly. Who I know, owns, I know Melissa. She did a film called well, Hounds <laughs> of Love, um, yeah. if any of your listeners are looking to sort of find out who these people are. And um, I worked with Melissa recently on... Um, a little TV series that's coming out at the end of the year. This is kind of a plug for it, I suppose, uh, called Upright with uh, Tim Minchin. So that will be out at the end of the I year. I saw
0: the photo of you and Tim on your Facebook. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah.
1: yeah that, was, that was a lot of fun to do. We did that in the desert in South Australia and then also in uh, Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. And so it so was a 12-day shoot. Um, but the but going back to my brother, so watching him kind of dedicate himself and say, I'm going to make sandwiches yeah, like every night I'm going to do that. And I'm going to write and I'm not going to kind of go off and try find a job that will, you know, do any more than pay my rent. And that's the way he lived. Basically, it was Stephenie's cat. Yeah. There's a cat called JD. She, she, she's says she's old. JD stands for Jack Daniels, which is bizarre. <laughs> bizarre name for a female cat. But that's it wasn't him. that called her that. He inherited the cat. And so um he's written all over the country with this cat. And it's just it's just arrived right back in Perth. And um. But he made sure that he always said, I'm not going to go off and do a teaching degree just to pay bills. I'm going to just keep going with the writing. And it's paid off. But that yeah. won't happen for everybody. That's right. Um, and if you think about the odds of actually winning that, they're quite like, low that yeah. you would ever win that competition. But having dedicated themselves to that uh, idea, it has come through. And mm. and hopefully now what will happen is as my brother moves in his uh, 40s in a few years, he will start to establish some sort of regular routine with the writing in terms of employment. Yeah. Um, and that will be him. He'll be able to sit within writing as his major um, yeah. sort of way of earning
0: an income. But, you know, it it, it won't change the writing. No. But, but the, I mean, it may do. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like a boxer, you know. Mm. I heard a saying the other day that you can't be working on the docks when you're sleeping in silk sheets, you know, yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. But – um. The point is uh, when you do write, whether you're a millionaire or a pauper, uh, it it's has the same feeling. Mm. So I think to your brother, there's, there's two sides of it. It will be a blessing to not make sandwiches and get paid. Mm. But the writing, what he'll get from the writing is still the same. You know yeah, yeah, yeah so like i i don't think he was sitting there going well i don't want to do this yeah. but the writing for him was a constant somewhere where he could escape to and he loved it yeah, yeah. you know I, I don't think he could have been making sanders if he didn't love writing
1: yeah and i think my, my brother is quite he's not probably as political as me but he does have a very strong uh social conscience and mm. so a lot of his work has to do with things to do with social consciousness, uh, social impact, um, our identity as Australians. Mm. And a lot of his work revolves around that. And so I think going back to what we were saying before, he has something to say. Mm. And so every day when he gets up, he, he can be angry, he can be in a good mood, whatever it happens to be, he still has that thing he wants to say to put down well on paper. So, And I think that's important. You've got to try and figure out what it, it, what your story is. And often what I'll say to students is a writer really only has one story they're going to tell in their life. But That's what right. they'll do is each time they write, if they're a good writer, they'll tell it in a different, perhaps a more complex way. If you look at something like Arthur Miller, all his work was based around social justice Mm. That was it, and every True. place is completely different, but they're all about social justice. Something like Shakespeare, people say Shakespeare, but he covers so much. And I go, essentially, if you look at Guy's work, it's about action versus inaction. Mm. I mean, Hamlet is just a big emo walking around going, <laughs> somebody, somebody killed my dad, oh, maybe I'll kill them, or maybe I won't, let's yeah. do this for four hours, and then everybody will die at the end. Sorry, spoiler alert, yeah, but yeah. you should have read it, it's 400 years old. Um, yeah. So it's one of those things where... You know, th- there is that story. Obviously, people are, are driven by something. And and again, going back to what you were saying about that vulnerability you need as an artist to be mm. able to put yourself out there. That's what vulnerability is. It's just being, I suppose, true to yourself and going, yeah. this is my story, mm. take it or leave it. And, and some people want to hear it and some people won't. But you just have to believe that if it's interesting for you, if it's something important for you, then there should be something... And it for other people as well.
0: Um, I'll f- being behind the camera. The saying was, "The camera looks both ways." Yeah, definitely. I'm yeah. gonna ask you, what's Mike's story? What's your story?
1: What's my story? Yeah, you mean been at the moment, or you've kind of got part of my story.
0: <laughs> the overall life arc of Mike McCall. What do you think your story is now? Uh.
1: It's, it's hard to know. I'm actually going through a moment of, um, not crisis, but I've suddenly, since finishing the PhD, I've had the first kind of um, little bit of time to think about where I'm at. Um, I've just, I'm 41, so I feel as if I've just turned 40. Uh, and 40 for me was always this uh, magical number where you had to get everything you were going to do in your life that was significant, done by, (laughs) and I'm now gone. Well, I I got quite a lot done, but there's still things I want to do. One of the things that's been interesting is since finishing the PhD, uh, sort of around about the middle of last year, um, I've started to get back into acting again. I never left acting, but it was one of those things where I constantly had to say to my agent, no, can't, can't, don't have time, because... I was teaching full-time, um, and I was also studying full-time, which made for kind of 80, 19 hour days for about four years, which I do not recommend It's not healthy in yeah,
0: any way that, whatsoever. That, those were
1: the times I never saw <clears throat> Yeah, it was like, mm. I mean, every weekend, every holiday. You know, I even crashed my car one time because I fell asleep at the wheel. It really is not a healthy way to live your life. Mm. Um, but since that's finished, um, I've ended up... Um, Sort of going back and going, I'd like to do my acting again. I, I feel those muscles aren't getting tested. And I just after PhD finished, I had a meeting with my agent, um, Ali Roberts, and I said, so what's the story? What do you think? And she said, well, she said every time we go looking for you, you just say no. She said, do your deal. Why don't you say yes to everything for six months and just see what happens? Yeah. And that was really like, I thought at the time I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. But then I went, okay, well, let's see what happens if I do do it. And and she was right. I started saying yes to things. And more and more work came along. It's like somebody once said to me, work begets work. I think that was very true. I ended up doing um, a, a little piece for Parkerville, a home for um, kids that have been abused. And uh, it's a great facility. They do a lot of important work. And I ended up with, with the director, Marty Wilson, where I had to be a father. Marty? God, yeah. I haven't heard
0: that. That name for
1: a long time. Yeah, well, Mark is done a lot of really great work around the place and he was actually the first director to cast me in a a film uh, Mm -hmm. when I came out of drama school. I ended up working with him uh, on a piece called Roll for SBS uh, many years ago and um, he got me to come in for the audition and the audition is obviously high stakes. And I think what's happened is over the years I've not been working, I've still been thinking always. I don't think you ever switch off this idea of being... Uh, of thinking about your craft as an actor. And so a lot of stuff is kind of dropped in to use, I don't know if that's the right expression, but just certain things emotionally have dropped in. Um, and I walked into the audition and he said, so this is a story, you're this father, you've just found out your daughter's being abused um, because she's tried to kill herself and it's come up in the hospital bed, off you go. And I just went... Dropped in the tears, like just put myself in those given kind of circumstances. I've seen that thing.
0: You showed me that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I
1: did that. It's was, it was quite powerful. Um, it was a hard shoot because it was two and a half hours of like you know angst. Um, but mm. you were always thinking, and again, this goes back to we talked about before. What's my story? I think my story is to try and make the world a better place in some way. Um, to show people uh stories reveal certain aspects of the the human condition that perhaps help them to understand the world that seems like a really big highfalutin idea but i think i have to have that highfalutin idea mm. to really justify what i'm doing because why am i not working as an ambulance driver why am i not um a fireman why am i not like studying medicine to help people it's because i think that's not necessarily talking to me the idea of being an artist as being an actor i feel as though that's how I get to put back into society and even though it might be i get a lot of joy out of it um and people might not necessarily relate it to being immediately an important part of the world we live in it is actually an important part that's how we learn Mm. how to be human beings we Mm. come along with the theater we go and watch a film and we go oh that's what love is oh that's how relationships work oh that's like what that dinosaur does you know that we learn so much from what we do and yet it's it's denigrated a lot Mm. But then after I did that piece, I kind of went, oh, I should do some more. So I ended up um, uh, getting this piece uh, with Tim Minchin uh, out in the desert. And that was great getting out and actually doing, um, I went in three different journeys like one to Adelaide, one to Woomera in South Australia, and then to Kalgoorlie. And it was just nice being in a set with a lot of real professionals, a lot of old friends as well. Yeah. Because um, I actually knew Tim like by, back about 20 odd years ago. And um, we ended up, it was just like walking in and going, "Hey, remember we all set off twenty years ago on the same journey, yeah. and here we are in the middle of the South Australian desert, yeah. doing our thing, you know." And obviously, he's gone off and become Tim Minchin, um, as we know Tim Minchin. I, I love, yeah. I love
0: stories like that because yeah. it's so, it's not coincidence. No, that you're all meeting at that time, yeah. you know. And
1: he actually, did, I never even auditioned for the part. He just gave me a ring, and I also Melissa Kelly, who's the producer on the piece. Um, I'd sort of been working with her a bit on some different stuff, and they both said, "Mike McCall, they needed a, a character called the Big Man, and <laughs> I'm a Big Man, so that the was it." Man. Yeah, so use it to your advantage. Yeah, that's it. So, and and I think it's interesting you say that use it to your advantage because I think that's it as well. I mean, I'm I'm overweight and I'm working, I'm dieting at the moment to lose the weight, but that's for health. That's for me. The but the thing was, it's about accepting who you are because I think so much of what goes on, in particularly when you're younger, is this self-examination, and in comparison to uh, cultural uh, sort of icons that that aren't you, they're not you, they're not yeah, you, and, yeah. and the more and more you try to fit into what you think is the the perfect uh, sort of image yeah. for what the industry wants, the more you're gonna get rejected. True. And and I think what happened is, and it might just be age, might just be experience, I've got to a point where I kind of uh, feel comfortable in my own skin, and so I'm able to go out and I'm able to cry in, in the given circumstance of a moment, I'm able to laugh, I'm able to play different roles, mm. and I'm able to tap into what makes me, me. Um, and that seems to be interesting, and I think it's not interesting because I'm interesting, it's interesting because it's the truth.
0: I think that that's what it is because the more you are comfortable with you, the more other people are comfortable with you. Mm. I think it's – um, you know people when you meet. Uh, you meet them, you know, they're not the best looking people but there's just something about them yeah. that is captivating. You want to be around them all the time. Yeah. It's just the confidence in who they are. Yeah. You know, and I think as actors, it's – I mean, it's specifically you should be able to, you know, like – if you're a big guy use it mm. and you'll get rolls that's it you know i mean no one sees that though and yeah. i think you can be healthy and still be big yeah and that's
1: you it and, and the thing with for me is as well i'm never going to be small because I'm I'm, I'm I'm actually is to use a phrase that sometimes people laugh at i am big boned like so even when i lose weight even if i lose all the excess i'm still going to be a big fella. So there's no getting around that. Mm. So I'm not going for the same roles that Leonardo DiCaprio goes for. It just That's pulls right. apart. Mm. So there's no point in looking at those things and going, why am I not getting that?
0: But look at the pressure those guys are under. Can you imagine the, the pressure? I'd, I'd like, take that
1: pressure. I could, if you give me $20 million <laughs> a movie, <laughs> True, right? I, would, I, would, I would work through that pressure. Isn't that right? I would <laughs> work through it. <laughs> with a with a cocktail, you're a of the Bahamas. But, you know,
0: do you think it is uh, it is the same, or you know, there's just so many more critics and eyes and articles written about you. you just would you feel it more than you are now? It doesn't matter how much money you get.
1: I think you can show another film I did after the the Tim Minchin piece is uh, called I Met a Girl, and I had a scene with a, a lovely actor that I've I'd never met before uh called brenton thwaites who's kind of like a Hollywood's kind of heartthrob you mention it to anybody uh who is, loves men and they will go oh brent thwaites and it's just a look of like kind of yeah, sati- satisfaction on their face just <laughs> thinking about him really. he's a very he's a very he, he fell in the right end of the gene pool yeah, let's yeah, put it that yeah. way <laughs> and uh but he's a very down-to-earth guy uh he's your listeners would know him best from Titans on Netflix oh, he okay. plays Robin uh as in Batman and Robin he plays Robin oh, okay. in that and he's a really great actor and uh he's doing this piece um that's coming out again Melissa Kelly produced it uh along with her um husband um Ryan Hodgson and it's a fantastic piece about uh schizophrenia and it's go I met a girl because basically I think from what I going from what I've read of the script um, it's a love story but it's seen through the eyes of somebody with schizophrenia so I think that's really important as well because dealing with a really important mental health issue mm. uh, but it's also dealing with the human aspect of it um, so that's going to be coming out soon but going back to what we're talking about with Brenton in that short time you meet Brenton you realise how generous he is with time uh, he, treat- he doesn't. Uh, he's a big star but he doesn't come in and go okay now listen to me this is the way it's going to be going to be, uh, he works through it with you and he tries to get the best possible stuff out of the scene. I find That's that the good. same with Tim Minchin as well. When we're working with Tim, um, he very he was the showrunner as well as one of the writers on the piece um, and he worked with the director Matt Saville really well. Uh, Matt Saville directed um, Cloud Street for people who might uh, be looking around for you know what has Matthew Saville done. And um, it was really excellent to see somebody of that calibre, of in, in that sort of position in the industry, walk in and go, I want to create a set where everybody feels as though there's an equality there, that we're all there focused on telling this story, getting this work done to the best degree possible. And there's no malarkey. There's no kind of people going off to trailers and not talking yeah. to other people. It was all about the focus on the story. And it was just a total joy beyond it. And it, and it reminded me of why... I do what i do because i think that's the thing if you're working in film or working in theater or any art form you need a moment sometime early in your career that makes you go oh yeah this is it this is why i'm doing this yeah now you might not get that again for 10 years which is depressing if you think about it but the but the important thing is you did have that moment uh you might you also have that moment on stage where you suddenly sort of transcend for a moment um the acting, and you become part of the scene, and you suddenly drop into that scene, and you go, "This is me now, inhabiting this character." And again, it only lasts for a scene. You go off stage, and you don't get it back. Maybe for another five what years. What
0: happens if you don't get it back? What happens if, if you know, you know, do you know actors that have just one day said, "It's not about the struggle. It's not about you know uh, getting roles." But suddenly, it's like, do you know what? I found something else.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's the pursuit of that feeling, that sensation. Um, If you mean by finding something else, I know lots of people have gone off. I know one guy became a vet because he suddenly went animals. That's that's my calling. I know another person that joined um, the Navy after Nida, a designer. Uh, She decided that was what her calling is. Um, Interestingly enough, she's now... Gone into agriculture. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't. I wouldn't say much more in case, like, because she works for the government, and so I can't say too much about her. But she's studying agricultural science. Um,
0: But I like that. I like. That's great. I I like such a varied life. Well, I think that's what it is. Um, You got to remember when you are on your deathbed. You know, it's, it's nice to say you've experienced different things and you've pursued different things. Mm. It was just because I reflect on that for myself, you know, um, two years ago I was doing six different things. I was teaching, I had a clothing online company, I was doing marketing, I was teaching at Film Bites, I was teaching night school, uh, for acting, I was teaching, uh, for Fern, Uh, and, the result was, is I was so spread out, I was so thin, that I wasn't doing any of them well. Mm-hmm. And um, But, you know, it was a slog and I was going through it. And all of a sudden, a few people we knew passed away, mm. young. And it really put me back. And, yeah. and this was my story. I don't know if I've told you this. This was my story. And um, we had a marketing meeting with a bunch of the directors and we had jobs coming up. And there was a few jobs that we thought we were pretty excited about. But my mind just wasn't in that head headspace because I was just remembering the guys that I'd known, that I'd literally just had spoken to. It was some young guys too, 27, 28 years old. Yeah. And um, it really made me think, you know, I thought if, if I was, if I knew I was going to pass away in a couple of months or six mm. months, would I have regrets? Would Mm. What would happen? And I just met up with a friend I hadn't seen in years who was a nurse who deals with a lot of uh, the elderly. And she was telling me, um, she was saying, Wayne, often I am there at their last moment because, you know, with the elderly suddenly they come and all of a sudden they get they fall ill within yeah. a matter of hours and then they go. So family don't have enough time to get there. Yeah. I'm the one. And she said you know you never hear about somebody talking or regretting that they don't talk about their cars or their houses or their jobs they talk about a few things i wish i had seen more places experienced more yeah i wish i'd spent more time with family and i wish i spent more time with friends or made new friends and she was telling me this and then people i knew passed away so at this marketing meeting you know we were going through the agenda and i said guys can i ask you if you were going to pass away in six months what would you would you have regrets what is it you really want to do it's like what is your story all right like you were saying and (laughs) they were just like where's this coming from and i told them i said this is what's happened recently but it made me it's made me become more introspective in my own thoughts Mm. my own life um, so what, what is it? And one guy said, you know, he wouldn't mind being on a farm, uh, you know, drinking his whiskey at the end of each day. Another guy said he wanted to start a charity. He'd always wanted to start a charity. And then they looked at me and I said, well, look around me, you know, I said, um, my passion's always been history, yeah. ancient history. I love mythology. Mythology, the mythological stories is what sort of got me into storytelling and, and developed my stories. Yeah. I said, but, you know, even though I've travelled a lot when it comes to documentary, I've never travelled to the places I read about Yeah. all the time. <laughs> and um, so they said, so what are you saying? And I said, uh, I think I'm going to stop. I think I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make an effort to start travelling to the countries I read about. Yeah. And my exact words were, was this, it's time for me to become – my own character in my own story yeah, yeah. and I, i'm constantly writing about these events that happen to these imaginary characters i want to be that yeah i i and it's not for everybody but for me it was i sat there and i thought um i don't want my legacy just to be and I never think about legacy. You know, yeah. I'm one of the guys that I don't want to be remembered. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> don't remember <laughs> when I go, I'm gone. Yeah. But before I go, I want to see, I want to see these ancient cultures that I read about yeah. that I love. Uh, and it takes planning. And I, I'm, I'm just grateful that my wife feels the same way. Yeah. And um, that was the turning point. I wanted to be a character in my own story. Yeah. And I wanted to live my own story. Um, and it had nothing to do with film. Mm. I wanted to talk to interesting people. I wanted to set a podcast up, talk to interesting yeah. people. Nothing to do with film Writing or directing, it was something new that I'd always wanted to do. Yeah. I'd always had a passion for tra- um for ancient culture, ancient stories, the ancient plays of Sophocles, Aeschylus, oedipus yeah. You know, like the the playwrights they used to do. And yeah, so I I I was thinking of the great tragedians. There was what was it, Sophocles, Euripides. Aeschylus, and Euripides. Yeah, and um, you know, actually speaking of that, just reading. A paragraph of Oedipus in the theater of Dionysus, where it was performed like two and a half thousand years ago. It was a surreal moment, you know. Sitting there, there wasn't there was probably three other people, and I just opened this book, and I that was that was one of those moments in my life, you know. Like I'm reading a story I love in a theater that it was performed in two and a half thousand years ago. But that was that was my journey. Oh, so over the last two years. I've made plans to sort of go. Okay, and first place I fell I was ancient Greece. I know the stories, I know the mythology, I know the history. Yeah. I'm wanting to go, so I went there. And Egypt was recently, but that was my turning point. Yeah. So it wasn't. It wasn't um, to do with the struggle of uh, pursuing stories in directing. Yeah. It's still storytelling. It you know it still is storytelling. Yeah, yeah but in something completely different, yeah. you
1: know? And it's interesting, you talk about like the idea that we're all characters in our own story, we're all the yeah. lead characters in our own story. I think the question then you have to ask yourself is, would you continue to read this story? That's if right. If it was you. And That's I know right. that there's been times in my life where I've went, hmm, if this was exactly. my. If this was a book. I'd put this book down and not yeah. open it again. Yeah. And that I think that's the kind of measurement of how your life is going. Yeah, and it's not to say that your whole life has to be on a high. No, you have no, to be not buzzing. At all. But not it's, at, all. at some point, if you just, if you look back over your life, and you go: in the last five years, I've done nothing that I personally find interesting. Would it be then, a
0: chapter that is taken out of the book yeah, or kept in? You'd, yeah. you'd want
1: you'd want to change that, because yeah. life is short. I mean, it can be very long, but. In all relativity, it will be short. It's short. Uh, And so you need to, if there's things you want to do, you've got to do them.
0: Time time is the biggest Mm. asset that we have. You know, like I I, I can't stress that enough. And I think when when somebody that you know passes away, Uh. it makes you question your own mortality. Mm. And it reminds you of how important time is. Like who's to say we're going to live till 90 years old? We could die next year. We could die next month, but and, and people go, don't be so morbid. You know, it's not. Oh, I'm being a realist. Yeah, yeah. It could happen. You, I mean, you yeah. had a you had a write off accident a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah,
1: and that was like it enormous. could go horribly wrong. Yeah.
0: So, um, I think I think that's a great analogy that you just said. If it's your own book, your own story, what what is it that you want to read? Yeah. Does there come a time where you stop reading the book? Yeah. And I think that's when changes need to be made in your own life yeah. where you start to think, you know, is this a book I want to read anymore yeah. or am I changing stories? It's funny because I haven't met that many people that have changed their story. Mm. And, but it was it was refreshing at the same time. Yeah. It was really refreshing, you know. It's yeah. like you're going from academia to acting again. It's yeah. refreshing. It reminds oh, you of so the Why? Yeah. You know, why you got into it in the first place. It was suddenly, you know, trekking through Sparta in Greece. Yeah. And and just thinking, you know, going to the going to the temple at Delphi where all the greatest people in our history and I often say that there's not one other place that has changed the world we live in today more than that little sanctuary on this mountain. Um, Because before they conquered nations, they would have to get the permission from the oracle that sat on this tripod. (laughs) And, you know, apparently the, you know, Apollo, the god Apollo would speak through her. Regardless of whether you believe the story, but the people that went there was history. Like, Mm. you know, you had Emperor Nero, Alexander the Great, you know, all these fantastic Socrates and everyone went there. But standing there on that little ramp where they walked up and just going, holy crap. (laughs) And it just sort of made me, it gave me new, like I got new energy Mm. uh, from that. And I never thought I would. I thought I'd be pursuing what I'd always pursued for my whole life. But it wasn't until I questioned the own mortality of like I could die. Yeah. What is it you want to read in your own book, you know? That's it. And it really does make you look in and go, okay, is this, you know, this is my book. Yeah, yeah. I'm the story. Is there anything that I need to change? Yeah. You know, what's the book that, I like what you said, what's the book I want to read? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's my story. Because you know?
1: I know that when I was doing the PhD um, the last few years, it wasn't the PhD was a bad thing to do. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm sort of denigrating the work I did. But it just wasn't me to do 19 20 hour days in some instances it was too much and it was taking away any time i had for any creative thought and i suppose that's why i was able to come straight out of it and go back into acting directing things like that and just immerse myself in that because i'd been missing it for so long because uh, interesting, I've talked to some people, I was in Sydney last weekend, I was talking to some of my friends and they were going, I'm so over it, it's just, I'm, I can't be bothered with it. And it, But the problem is they're not going to take a break. They're going to keep pushing, because I think that's the nature of some artists, is they'll just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Because yeah. what they're worried is that if they do take a break, then somehow... Uh, this amazing opportunity will come along, and they will miss that opportunity.
0: It's like uh, it's like lottery, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it's like I got to make sure I put my numbers in every weekend <laughs> because the because one day I don't, that's it. And yeah, and you, know, and, and you would you kick yourself if you did it, mm. but that's a tangible thing because you can look at those numbers. They will come up, and you'll be able to go, "I should have had my numbers in this week." I've just like lost twenty million dollars. But as far as opportunity comes, you can't know that. No, you don't. You, you don't know what somebody's making, and and no. I think it's. Again, a lot of stuff we talked about today, like failure, things like that. I think surrender is another aspect of it, or, or vulnerability. Huge yeah. aspect. You've got to surrender to your life. Like yeah. You've got to understand it. Huge. You don't dictate it. You can't no, dictate no, it. you can And if you go through your whole life going, I might miss The, the students have a, a thing they call FOMO a uh, fear of missing out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's, that, that worries me that there's even a term called FOMO. FOMO. Because it means that people have thought about it and they've thought about this idea that people, it's widespread enough that it has a little acronym and I think that's dangerous <laughs> because there is no missing out. No, nah, there isn't. You know, like you can't say, oh, I missed out on being in Titanic because Leonardo DiCaprio got the role. That's just bizarre. Yeah, It's yeah, a bizarre yeah. thing to think. So you've got to kind of get back to this idea of like, what's the best life you can live? Mm. Um, one of my tutors once said a really good way of thinking about it as an actor is to think, can can you be the best human being possible? And that's not about being like a Herculean kind of mm. god. Mm. It's actually about experiencing as much as possible yeah. in your life. Yeah. Um, because you can never be you can never experience everything. You'd be a basket case if you did. If you no. experienced things like suicide child loss, war, <laughs> so famine, sad. you wouldn't be, you'd be like in a, a really bad state, you wouldn't be an yeah, actor, yeah. so at the end of the day, a lot of it's going to rely on your imagination, but your imagination's informed by the, the more open you are to experiences, yeah. so she used to say, go and learn how to ride a motorbike, go and learn how to ride a horse, yeah. uh, go for a walk,
0: yeah. Simple, simple things, things like that. Enjoy just, the simple things yeah. you get for free.
1: Have a coffee around the place. That's yeah. it. You know, it's just one of those things about as an artist, they often, particularly actors, they forget. That I think, their job is I to think, live life. I think
0: specifically mm. acting. I think, yeah. uh, like you, like you were saying before, you draw from yourself within yeah. each character. Um, how can you draw something that you you know that. The idea is to get as much experiences as you can that yeah. you can draw from you know yeah. um and acting's
1: a funny thing because acting isn't a job that's the funny thing you don't do acting mm. so i think it's maybe the only thing in the world you don't do mm. right because nobody ever
0: true goes i'm, I'm, I'm being going an to actor be now acting yeah they yeah. go
1: i am Richard the yeah. third i'm yeah, hamlet you yeah. know i'm juliet yeah that's what you are. That's what you're doing at that time. And then next week you might be a doctor on television. And then the following week you're, you know, a handmaid in Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, you're sort of moving around all the time between jobs.
0: Is is there a problem that happens with acting where you start to lose who you are because you're so immersed in other characters?
1: I think you can go down. I think the extremes of that are people who do um, full on method acting and all respect to method actors out there but it's one of those things where i remember reading about I um, do it. meryl streep's daughter um they were asking what's it like to have a mum like meryl streep who's famous for immersing herself in roles and her daughter said something this is about uh, 20 years ago I read this she said um i never actually knew my mother till i was 17 and they went what do you mean by that well, every time I come home, she'd have a different accent or she'd have some sort of prosthetic she was working with, uh. or she'd be walking a certain way. And then it was two years where she decided to take time off um, just to have a break because she'd been working solid for something like, you know, 30 years. And um, she sort of took a step back and went, oh, so this is who my mum is that worries me i think that's that's as yeah. a high level immersion but again meryl streep amazing right okay so there was there's, there's something to be said for doing that and having that discipline and that skill to immerse yourself so much but you've got to think about the people around you as well that's right and the people around you inform you as yeah. to who you are because ultimately you're just a reflection
0: that would on, kill that would have killed meryl Streep hearing that i think so
1: I, and i don't i don't but think, I think she, for
0: every mother yeah. If, if their daughter turned around and said, "I didn't know my mother till she was 17. yeah, till I was seventeen because she was a different person all the yeah. time. That's wow.
1: it. And I think that I don't know. I, I've got a, quite a number of friends that have kids who are actors, like the the, the couples who are actors, and I wonder if their children sometimes experience the same thing. But I don't think so. I think that's a really extreme that kind of uh, immersion that we're talking about. I think what it comes down to is you want to keep yourself open to experience. Yeah. And if your experience is as a parent and open yourself up to, you know, being around your children, uh, don't dismiss them, don't put them to one side, compartmentalise them. Yeah. Actually that, have them front well, and centre. Well, that's what I
0: was saying. Do you, do you lose yourself? Um, do you forget who you are after years and years of, especially, you know, Meryl Streep, who is full-time, yeah. like she's offered roles all the time. Yeah. Do you tend to lose yourself?
1: Um, I, I lost myself for a while. At one point, I was in my early years, probably my late twenties. I remember at one point turning around and going, "I can't remember who I am anymore." Like what? Oh God! You know, which is a strange thing. It wasn't a kind of. It wasn't. I'd lost myself so much that I mm-hmm. wasn't able to function. It was more a case of going. I don't know what I do here, and again, it's back to the idea of like acting not really being a job it's like you, you take on roles you play those roles that's right. those roles are your job um and those personalities that's those no characters True. yeah that's it and, and you can get kind of like if you're working constantly you can get to the point where you go i can't remember what i'm like when i don't have an acting job yeah that and that's quite a strange thing that's and, the hell yeah of me. well that happened to me in my late 20s and then Thankfully, unemployment hit. I didn't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> I know who I, yeah, I the, know who I am. That's, uh, I, rem- I remember this guy. Fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this guy. Yeah, yeah. But it was like about four years, I think, where I was in constant work. Um, mm. And I was playing great roles around the place. But then I actually took a step back one day and went, I can't remember what I'm like when I'm not doing
0: this job. In character? Yeah, yeah when I'm not when playing not, a character. Yeah. Yeah, that would scare the hell yeah. out of me.
1: So, somebody like Merrill Street was that at that other level. Mm. Um,
0: I don't know if it's healthy though.
1: It's probably not.
0: I don't know if it's healthy.
1: But what is healthy?
0: Yeah, what is healthy? <laughs> but is that a fear of finding and discovering who you are, you know, or not, or not knowing who you are and thinking I'm more comfortable immersing myself into somebody else? Because yeah. it's safe. Yeah, the other you thing know? as
1: well is there's a fear of not being able to sustain that character i remember reading once stanislavski said the real test of an actor is whether they can sustain a character for 24 hours Mm. but i think when you start to go into the realms of uh, 20 million dollars a film a lot of these actors go well i can't drop it because if i drop it it might be really difficult to pick up the next day so i'm just going to sit in this character for the six weeks that we're shooting for and that's the way it's going to be um Again, is it right or wrong? I don't know because don't. I don't get paid $20 million yeah, I and I don't know what those pressures I are like. I have that as a benchmark. Yeah.
0: But when you were working 18 hours a day, uh, you know, doing your PhD and teaching and, and running departments, yeah, what was the biggest toll that you suffered?
1: Biggest toll I would say is in personal relationships, yeah. uh, particularly with a partner at the time. Um, didn't pay her enough attention. Yeah. Um, well it's which, hard to isn't it well, the, the, what, what's, well this interesting, interesting perspective I understood that afterwards Um, I didn't understand it at the time because the little bit of times that I did have free I would spend with her and oh, okay. so for me I was making everything else I was putting everything else aside in order to spend that time but ultimately for that person they're in a different wavelength because they are going. I'm seeing you like you know couple of times a week mm. so what is this all about and then after a couple of years you kind of go well what's that all about so um that was a major issue then you've got uh things like i put on a lot of weight because it was so sedentary
0: yeah but you needed to because now you're getting rolls because of it i know well but done. it's, it's <laughs> a bit scary it's a bit scary i don't i don't, well I don't want to
1: go the way of the john candy or the chris Farrow. you know um, i don't think you will uh so but the um Yeah, putting on weight was a bad thing. I don't think that's healthy. Um, Lack of sleep, nearly crashing cars because you're falling asleep Mm. at the wheel, you're that tired. And also just being able to really deal with what's in front of you. So I'd be teaching and I'd be giving to the students uh, as much knowledge as possible, uh, giving of them time and whatnot. But then when it came to really sitting back and thinking clearly about a concept or anything like that, and even within the PhD itself, sometimes I was not given enough time to that, and that's bad. Like because I think you need to find time in life to really concentrate on something. I was I was saying to somebody the other day, I'm nearly finished the first fiction novel because when I started the PhD, I stopped reading fiction because I only had time to read textbooks, yeah, and th- and philosophical books sure. and things like that. Is connected to the PhD, but it was no fiction, and so I'm partway through this piece, and it actually took quite a while. It took the best part of six months to get going again, because how we read a book, a fiction book, I used to think it was just it was like riding a bike—you just get on it and that was it. But it's not. Mm. You actually have to engage certain muscles in your memory and in your mind, imagination. And your imagination. Mm. They weren't firing on all cylinders when I first started, and I remember reading the first few pages of the book and going. I got absolutely nothing out of isn't that. Isn't it interesting? It, it was so weird. It was like, wh- why am I not able to enjoy this book? And it, it, I think I read about two chapters before I suddenly went, oh, okay, we're off and running again. I recognise this. I'm kind of lost in the book. I'm lost in the world. But that first couple yeah. of times I was going, I can't, I can't immerse myself in this. Yeah. My imagination isn't working anymore. Yeah, That's a strange thing like to have. And yeah. then I think, the people in the world who that's their everyday because the jobs that they have don't allow for imagination right. and that uh, kind mm. of empathy that comes uh with imagination particularly when you're dealing with a, a novel or something like that
0: i think uh, i think things are changing because technology is changing you know like we're, we're not in the industrial age anymore or third industrial age but more the information age. Yeah. And I think, you know, the more technology has its hand in whatever we do, I mean, it all comes with a sense of creativity on what we're doing. It's I think life will change in that way. But it's interesting that you say, like, the muscles you don't exercise mm-hmm. and you don't know until yeah. you pick up a fiction book, you know, eight years later yeah, you think, I didn't get anything. Well, what's what's wrong with me? Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it's, it's the same with the, the weight. It's like in this weight... It, it's use it or lose it, you know. Yeah, if, if you're not, and again, it goes, I suppose it kind of turns back towards that being the best human being possible. It's like go and work out, not because you want to look like Leonardo DiCaprio uh, yeah. or something like that, but work out because, yeah, we are that's the way our bodies are designed. But I
0: think, I think that comes with a sense of age and maturity too, being more comfortable with who we are. Yeah, uh, you don't go to the gym because of aesthetic reasons yeah. it's it's more like a health and i feel better i go for aesthetic uh, <laughs> yeah. well i'm cute as i'm cute as hell anyway <laughs> <before You're fine. laughs> you haven't. no but it's funny because recovery time's a lot harder for mm. me i injured my back uh, i was boxing and gymming and you know yeah. and i lost a lot of weight and it was great and then i injured my back and there's nothing worse like yeah. i there were times i i I lived in a back brace for like three months on and off. Mm. I'd be teaching a class hanging onto a door. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was that extreme. So I couldn't exercise, but my appetite stayed the same. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you put on this weight. But, you know, after a while I sat there and I thought, Well, it's not bothering me like it did when I was thirty five yeah, yeah. or thirty, you know. Because I know I, I know who I am, but I just have to when my back's better, I'll just go back and do what I was really worried about, is it going to interfere with my travel? Yeah, carrying a bag with a camera in it—that would kill me. Yeah, yeah, you know, because that would be my memory of the experience. Yeah, would be the pain of getting there, and I didn't want that, you know. Mm. But it is—it changes things, you know. But you said you're—you're you're hitting what? Well, how old are you now? Forty. Uh, Forty-one, nearly 41. forty-two. What is it that you fear the most at this age?
1: Was that I fear? Yeah. I don't think I fear <laughs> anything. I don't. I don't have any real fears. Um, I wonder if I will have regrets about things. But I think Mm -hmm. if I have regrets about things, they won't necessarily make themselves clear to me for another little while. Because I always lived life, I always had a, a sort of philosophy that, if at any point in your life, you feel as though you have regrets, you need to change it up, because life's too short to have regrets. And I always did that, I always changed it up. In the last few years, Uh, I feel as though perhaps I've lost time with my studies and whatnot. Um, There's things I would have done differently if I could go back again. Um, But at this moment in time, I'm not having too many regrets about it. I'm actually kind of accepting that that was uh, the journey. Of course it is. And I'm moving on from it. Um, Uh And I think I'm getting my act together again. So... At the moment I feel as though I'm back to my old kind of self of like no regrets. I am going through a little bit of a hazy point in the moment with work where I'm going, am I making enough time for myself to do the things I want to do, particularly creatively? Yeah. But I'm also adjusting how I operate at work and, balance. and that yeah, to get the balance. So I I feel as though in the next little while I'm gonna be good. But I think down the track Ultimately, I'll have to reevaluate how I live my life um, and whether or not uh, I'm going to change things up in some way. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that will all be down to me. It'll all be down to certain other people in my life. Um, it to, should be down to you. It should be down to me. But th- but the other thing as well is being like a social creature. Um, I'm going to have to uh, decide what I do based on the some other people in my life, not in a negative way but whether or not I'm going to choose to go perhaps alongside someone through the next bit of my life or whether it's going to be a solo
0: journey. That kind of idea. Yeah, I think that that would, would evolve as you evolve. Yeah. You know, like don't change yourself to be with somebody that's with you for the rest, you know. Yeah. I think that's, that's the misconception. I think people will come and, you know, it's like all of a sudden a few years go by and you're – walking next to that person. Yeah. Anyway, you know, it's that yeah. sort of a thing. But yeah. it, it is a it is it's a fear of a lot of women I know of mm. being alone. Yeah. Uh, you know, ending up alone and yeah. and then as you get older it's dying alone and things like that. But fear is a big thing. Like uh, that's my fear is is having regrets. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to have any regrets and it's uh, I think Regret is a lot worse than fear.
1: I think so. I think a so. lot worse than fear. Yeah, yeah.
0: People don't do the things a lot of the times they want to do because of fear. Yeah. Fear of failure, fear of missing out, fear of doing, you know, um, losing people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when I did speak to my friend and she said it's just compared to what they feel at those last moments. Yeah. Before they close their eyes and they're talking about it. And it's a good reflection, you know. You sit yeah. down going, really. At the end of the day, we're all going to be closing our eyes. Yeah. You know, what's the thoughts we want to? You know, are we going to close that last chapter mm. and go, yeah, that was me. I'm, yeah. I'm happy. Or is it like, is there another fucking book? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there a sequel? Please let there be a sequel. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I'm not satisfied. Yeah. Mm. And I think a lot of people come
1: to the sequel. Uh, moments after they retire. It's almost like that's the sequel. Yeah. And I go, but it didn't have to be the sequel. That could have been your first book.
0: It could be the one and only book. Yeah, yeah, Travelling is another thing that reminds you of how old you are. Yeah. Because you forget how, you know, it's how fit you've got to be. Yeah, yeah. Like just walking everywhere and you start to go. And, you know, we. I was seeing a guy, in a. I was a lady in a walker Mm. trying to get up the acropolis yeah yeah and she had help and and you anyway, know good for her like yeah, yeah. she's still there trying and yeah, doing yeah. it i don't want to do, i don't want to get to the no. stage where i'm not able health yeah to see the things i want to see
1: well that's uh, so much you know? so much of what we do in particularly in western culture mm. is based around this idea that you knock your pan in for about 35 40 years and then you retire and then you get your reward when in fact it should be integrated, you know, that's that's the thing, yeah. and it doesn't always have to be that you get to go overseas on a holiday, no, but whatever, wherever you are, wherever your position, social, economic status, and whatnot, then you should still have a re- rewarding life. There should be, um, ongoing sort of marks ongoing. along the way mm. where you can go, Yes, this is this is a little reward. I've spent five years with no money, and now I'm going to do. This trip to Bali, or I'm going yeah. to go down south, or whatever it happens to be, um, I'm going to experience something that's going to be really great. Um, I'm going to take my kids somewhere. I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to jump out of a plane or whatever it happens to be. Whatever the marks are for you, but you have moments where you go, yes, the, all that work was working towards this mm. little reward, this little yeah. experience that I'm yeah. going to hold on to that's going to drive me on and keep me keep me going. Because I think a lot of people don't have that. And I think that's a real shame and I think it's really unhealthy. Um, But you can't always see it when you're in it.
0: No, you can't. Mm. It's like you said, you don't really know the regrets until it happens.
1: Travel around Australia is really important. In in recent um, years, I've tried to get around Western Australia a bit more. One of the great things about um, working in Notre Dame has been that they've got a canvas in Broome. Um, One of the interesting things when I was up in Broome, I got to know the community really well. And then at one point I was up there I got taken out to see this guy called Greg Quick um, who's become, come, become kind of a character, a bit famous because Brian Cox picked up on him when he was out travelling and uh, doing that kind of stuff with Julia Zemiro um, to do with this guy at night. But I'd been to see Greg before that and Greg's uh, become known as the Space Gandalf which is, <laughs> he's kind of a he's, a, he's an old surfer who was then an electrician in a truckie and what he realised was when he was doing his truck driving, he'd have to sleep out under the stars at night. And he was doing that for years. And after a while, he noted that the stars seemed to be moving and he couldn't quite pick up why they were moving. And then he realised it wasn't the stars that were moving, it was planet Earth that was moving. And so he became a kind of like self taught astronomer. And he's gone on and on now. And he has this thing called Astro Tours up in Broome that are just fantastic. You go about 12 Ks outside Broome into the, the bush. Uh Broome's in a really nice, sweet spot in the universe because you can see the n- bit, bit of the northern hemisphere and you can mm. see a bit of the southern hemisphere. So when you go up there, there's just and there's no, like, no obtrusive light no obstructive. Yeah. So you're there and you can see everything and it blows your mind.
0: I've never seen stars like it.
1: Oh, it's incredible. Mm. Incredible. But the um the interesting thing about Greg is he starts to uh, he's he's got this belief in what he calls earth-turning consciousness where he, he's he got books out and podcasts and you can have a look at your own time about it. But one of the things that's interesting is he's trying to bring the, the human community together by making us aware that we're on this planet and we're all moving together. And if we could get our act together as a, a species and realise that we're here for like less than a blink of an eye, it'd be really great. And one of the things he points to is there's a reef just off Broom um, and he started off, he started talking about the Milky Way. He was talking about how the Milky Way is a galaxy rotates, and it takes about probably 275 million years to rotate. That's a lot of time. Around the Milky Way. Just around, just moving around. So the Earth moves with the Milky Way, obviously, yeah. and um, it will take 275 million years from where the Earth is now to get back to this point, right? He then goes, there's a reef just off Broome. That reef's been there for three hundred and seventy five million years. It kinda of blows your mind because you realise that before the dinosaurs. Before the dinosaurs, like going right back and, and, and what's it seen? Not that a reef sees anything, the reef has no eyes, but like but what what yeah, is what has it been I, present to? I
0: always when I travel, I you know, when I'm stepping on stones and like even sitting on the pyramid. Yeah. I'm thinking, who was here? Mm. Like who laid this stone? Who cut yeah. it? Who Was walking, who was sitting in my seat in the theater of Dionysus? Yeah, you know, but we're only talking two and a half thousand years ago, yeah, but still, yeah. it just blows my mind. And when you that think that sort of thought,
1: even the Aboriginal culture, you think like they've now they've sort of worked out now that it's anything from 60,000 to 120,000 years old. 120,000 years old, it's still not even a blink. I know it may actually be in, a blink, it may just work out as a blink,
0: but it's true in yeah. the big scheme of things. And, and I think that's a reminder for all of us. You know, and there's one thing that I, when I read about uh, Greek mythology, humans weren't the centre of the universe. They weren't no. even important, yeah. you know. And, and in that movie, I think Ralph Fiennes even says, you know, you're nothing but specks of dust beneath our feet. yeah. yeah. But it was refreshing, you yeah. know. Like, we're not important. I'm sorry, no. we're not. You know, in the big yeah. scheme of things. And when you're looking at astronomy, yeah. you just think, no, we'd, we're we're less than a blink.
1: Yeah, we're, we're kind of like cellular matter. Yeah. If even that, we're kind of like the bacteria on cells. <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> With a, a virus. We're, we're not even a single-celled <laughs> organism. Yeah, we're, we're like not just even a, a virus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like one of those things where you kind of go, hmm, what does it all mean? And I think that's important, like, from what we've been talking about, it's like, maybe there isn't this, like, deep-set meaning. No. You find the meaning in what you do. Yeah, yeah, true, true. And, and I suppose you think about life, life is just just be kind to people. Yeah, because what makes you smile. That's it, we all passing through. And mm. it's horrible to think that some people get, like, a split second of life, and then other people who are just nasty pieces of work get forever. Yeah. Um, But that's just the way the world is. It's like some days you walk past an ant, some days you step on an ant. Yeah explain that behaviour I and, don't know and some know.
0: days we're the ant yeah that's it you know, you
1: know? something just falls on you and that's do you
0: believe it? like with climate change I believe it's the earth will recover earth it's, is it's, it's, we, yeah. we, we will be extinct yeah but the earth will keep going
1: you look at some like Chernobyl at the moment not yeah. not the TV series which I hear yeah. is very good but yeah, I will yeah. watch it at some point but Chernobyl itself you see pictures from there and the vegetation is taken over Yeah. the animals and have all life. popped up and that, I mean it's polluted. I mean, so I don't know I don't know if there's any deer even, deers
0: with two heads. Yeah,
1: mutant deer isn't necessarily what we're after. But, you, but they're happy. But you can see the they're popping up. Yeah. Like the the earth is taking care of itself. That's right. Um and there are many other places. Even with
0: the radiation.
1: Yeah, and I saw I saw a place the other day in a picture and Fukushima? it was uh it wasn't Fukushima. It was another place where the people used to live and they'd all moved out I can't remember what country it was in but the houses had all been reclaimed and so there's this strange thing when you look at the houses it's this fishing village somewhere it wasn't japan but right. you can see where it's just all green now you can definitely see the outlines of the houses but completely green yeah and and you know another
0: that will be our cities
1: yeah another 50 years 60 years you won't even see the houses anymore because they'll yeah. be broken down chewed up by that's the. that's why fish.
0: you know when people you know, were destroying the, the earth will recover yeah we're yeah. doing damage but it will recover it will be us that won't yeah and I think we'll just be another another section, yeah. another chapter in the story of Earth. Uh, we'll I, come and yeah. we'll go. I
1: and mean, we wouldn't have anything like... It, it, people think, oh, but we'll always be around like the pyramids and whatnot. You go, no, but they built things to last. We yeah. haven't built anything that lasts. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that would probably be around still is plastic. You know, And that's not a yeah. good legacy to leave.
0: Actually, you're right. You know, when you said that, I, I thought, yeah, can you imagine? Like like we're getting rid of it, but that will be around. Yeah. You know, that people will go, What 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 were they doing? Yeah. You know? And a, and with the oceans, they'll find it all in the ocean yeah. too.
1: And there's plenty of instances in history already where things like that have happened. If you look at like the Incas and Aztecs, they've now sort of worked out that the population's got too big. And they Mm. kind of got into a lot of carnage and war and Mm. infighting and eventually...
0: Cutting down the trees. Yeah, and eventually they think,
1: that what happened with these people? And they don't know this for sure, but they just sort of turned around one day and went, let's just get back to nature. And they all just dropped off their clothes and walked back into the jungle. And that was it, because the the actual society had broken down so much Mm. that they went, the only way to get back to some sort of human state was to reject everything that was modern technology for them. And that's a scary thing. We don't want to go down that road, really. We're doing not too bad. We're doing really interesting stuff uh, with health, with space travel, things like that. It would be good if we could keep going that way. But if it's not to be, it's going to be not to be very soon, I suspect.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's the scary point of it all, is that Mm. we're not talking a thousand years. No. We're talking, could be a hundred. Yeah, It'd be 50, 100 years yeah, where yeah. we start to see major differences. Do you think we'll end up colonising other planets?
1: Um, not at this point in time. Uh, not the way we're going. I think we've got the potential to definitely, like places like Mars and whatnot. Um, but the thing that worries me about the idea of colonisation is no good ever came of colonisation. Mm. That's the thing. And so... There's a whole bunch of stuff out there we don't understand.
0: We'll go and destroy another planet. <laughs> Essentially.
1: And, and I think with somewhere like Mars, it's already destroyed. It's like it's had a life, yeah. judging from what the scientists say, yeah. and that, that life is no longer. It's like a bit of water trapped in some polar ice caps. Yeah. The way that we've worked in the past is colonizers, as we go in, we rape and pillage the whole place. So how long will it be till all that water's gone? how long will it be till we put the place? Mm. I know. I mean, they're talking about taking up things like potatoes and whatnot and growing them, and you kind of go, well, is that what it's going to be? It's just going to be potatoes? And if there's iron ore and all that, we're just going to dig up Mars. Yeah. It's just going to become a big <clears throat> quarry. And that's not actually helping anyone in the sense that they imagine it's going to be this um, alternative planet to go to if we mess up this one. No, I
0: think we need to evolve first. Yeah, definitely. I think we need to evolve first in that sort of sense, yeah. you know? But isn't it um, when you do look at things like the lifespan of planets Yeah, and you were saying the reef is how… 375 million. Yeah. um, The Burrup. There's a place called the Burrup. A friend of mine, Claire, she introduced me to this uh, place, a very spiritual place Mm. to the indigenous people. And uh, the French archaeologists and anthropologists were coming over and they were saying that if this location was in Europe, it would have been closed off. years and years ago, because they're estimating around 30,000 years old. Yeah, yeah. 30,000 years old. It's crazy. And they've got these beautiful paintings and and drawings on on these rocks. Yeah. A very spiritual place. But even that, you know, you go to Greece and then you go to Egypt 1,500 years earlier, you're walking through these temples. That dwarf anything. Yeah, yeah. Like except, you know, the modern buildings of Dubai and Shanghai and New York – but you got to remember when that was when these temples were built. Yeah, yeah. And you're looking up at these structures, just going, "I do think there were, were an advanced race." Yeah. I just don't think we give them enough credit. Because you know, we still think, era? "Oh, look, they, how could they do that with chisels?" And no, but had,
1: but the, I think all these races are Incas, because all that—that's scary thing. And then the other scary thing is you go, "Wait, so they were around? Where are they?" Yeah. Same with the Romans, yeah. same with the Greeks. Yeah. It's like the Persians, yeah. Persians, the Mongolians. Yeah. Like yeah. The, I mean, these these people, the, the, when they exist. These empires. And they, mm. and they seem to be forever the same as the American empire, I suppose. Yeah. But you can start to see with that um, interest in president that they have at the moment, is almost a sense of the philosophy, the ethos of America becoming redundant mm. within the world. And then you go. Is this the point? Is this this this, this the end of history for America mm. as it's been understood? Well they,
0: well, they do say every empire has a, a lifespan of 20, 50 years yeah, yeah. Or, or more. You know, but um, yeah, but you can you feel it though. Do you feel yeah. there's a change in there's a change in the air now, Yeah, isn't there?
1: and then it's the question of who occupies that vacuum, like what they bring to the party. <sighs> yeah, man.
0: Yeah. That, well, that scares me more. Yeah. Because would you be would you be under the United States rule or China?
1: Um, at the moment, I'd rather be on the United States yeah, because of notions of freedom that aren't necessarily uh, realities. Yeah. When the grand scheme of things, but there's still that notion of freedom. Whereas I worry about things like um, Tiananmen Square well,
0: because it's in the news well, recently. just
1: control. That, yeah, that control.
0: Just average. Just I don't think a lot of people think that. No. But, you know, give me right now, give yeah. me the United States any day yeah. of the week. And it's know? that
1: punitive aspect of. China that worries me. Uh, no, uh, no offense to any Chinese listeners, but it's the sense that um, I've been able to pick up people in the street and lock them up. At the moment, we're having a big discussion in Australia just about a couple of journalists and our state broadcaster. I was looking at your house, and then it's a real. Uh, we see that as a real issue because um, the media is the fourth estate. We need the media we to keep media. accountability over the judicial mm. system, over the political system, over law to remove that is a really big issue for us here. It's not an issue in China because it's never been over, right. uh, under the the current regime and going right back to the sort of 1950s it's never been an issue. Yeah. Um for those the people that go against the system within China then it's an issue for them, but the the sort of punishment that comes along with going against that system is so overwhelming that I think a lot of people would rather just not even think about it. Um, so I'd, it's what's it, happening. Yeah, it's the hard, and it, but it's starting to happen in the West as well. So by no means am I saying that the the West is... <laughs> we're just like, behind. We're just behind. It's, <laughs> it, it's just that there's still those notions of freedom that we carry. Um, that stretch not only uh, into the home, but also within aspects of our society.
0: Oh, well, we're losing it slowly and slowly. Yeah. Technology's coming in slowly, slowly. Yeah. And in the end, you just got to throw up your arms and go, well, wh-? unless I'm willing to take a bag and go and move in the middle of the desert. That's it. But if I'm here, well, you know, your phones yeah. are tracked. Yeah. You know, I mean, we can. I can log into your phone and know where you've been. Yeah. Just and like all your... Um, and,
1: and all the security services have had that. I mean, Edward Snowden, people forget the guy, but he he went on the record and he revealed that everything we have, uh, even this yeah. podcast, yeah. Um, the phone that I've got in front of me right now, all that is a listening device and it can be tapped at any time. Yeah. And, and even though I know that, at no point have I gone out in the street and started
0: protesting for right. the change. But isn't that scary?
1: Yeah, because I suppose the way I think about it is if, um, if I'm not doing anything wrong, then I shouldn't have to yeah, worry. But, but then there's a whole bunch of uh, other privacy issues. There's transparency issues that go on there. And, and I think as a society, we've got a lot of fear. We were talking about fear before. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that fear is building and building. The more that um, the leaders in society espouse the fear, the more we get fearful and therefore the more we rel- the relinquish. The easier we can be controlled. Yeah, we can relinquish control because we want to. Mm. that's the thing we want to we want to feel safe, so we we're cr- prepared to do it. And it'll take a really immense event of invasion of privacy to get but, us to turn around. But Mike, that's happened.
0: Look at Snowden. You think yeah. you think people would well, rush that... the streets and throw up their arms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Julian Assange. Yeah. I mean they're both one's living in Russia and one's on the you know, arrest. So yeah. you sit there and go, Where where do we go from here? Yeah. I often say when people turn around to me and say But, you know, if we're doing nothing wrong. So would you invite a stranger into your home that you've never seen? Let them walk around. They're not going to do anything to you.
1: They're just
0: going to watch you and listen. Would you allow that? Or someone looking through your window? No, you wouldn't. But yet it's become acceptable to sort of go, well, the phones can be listening devices. The TVs can be listening devices. And
1: there's really no difference between that and East Berlin. Yeah, exactly. During the the Soviet uh, era. Because that's what was happening there. People were looking through when those people were like, I think they'd worked out there was one in every three pe- people was a spy in mm. East Berlin. That meant that if you had a family of four, what if you was a spy? Yeah. At least. You
0: yeah. Know? Um, the Nazi party. Yeah. With the Hitler Youth. Yeah, yeah. They're all spying on families and, that. and taking the advice back. Families getting prosecuted. Yeah. Uh, we just use technology for that now. Yeah. But yeah. we got to use it in a good way too. Yeah. Like and, I I can't wait to get into this VR world.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like um It's going to be really interesting.
0: What what do you think really quickly on augmented reality, AR?
1: I think it's interesting. Um I think it has the potential however to be used in such a way that people will get lost down a rabbit hole and not get back out. So you look at the sort of uh, the the world of kind of black mirror where mm. people you know, put sensors on their brain and, mm. and get lost in there. Mm. I think augmented reality could do, go, definitely go down that track. I'm much more excited about virtual reality and its mm. ability to allow people to empathise in the moment. Mm. I look forward to the days when journalists are going to be in refugee camps and you're going to experience what's going on right there True. and then. And it's no longer just, you know, the 30 seconds the news can fit in. True. It can be broadcast 24 hours a day. And if I really want to like experience what that's like, I will be able to.
0: Really quickly, um, what's what's next for Mike? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happens next. So you're in a hazy period at the moment. I'm a
1: hazy period. I'm in a hazy shade of winter, I believe the song goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm evolving. Like, is a constant.
0: Are there changes going to be coming?
1: Um I believe and I don't know if this is true we'll find out stay tuned a couple of years time I believe I'm going and this is going to sound terribly narcissistic <laughs> I believe I'm about to head into a very deep part of my craft in terms of acting Develop. writing directing I feel it coming uh, I, I think I'm at an age where there's things I want to say and I'm about to say them great over the next sort of Fantastic. five to ten years um i think writing is going to pop up as a um a sort of front and center mm. uh part of my life it's not been before it's always yeah. been acting and directing there's just certain things going on in the world and it's kind of tied to evolution as well because i think we need to keep evolving uh, because well, let's be honest if donald trump and Kanye west are the peak of evolution. <laughs> And there's nothing more that comes it's after scary, this. Isn't it? That's a wee bit scary. That that like those millions of years of evolution have led to Donald Trump and Kanye West as the peak physical yeah. beings that we're going to be. We're in trouble. So yeah, I think I there's things I need to say, and and to some degree, those two individuals Fantastic. like sort of represent the things that I'm angry about, yeah. and I want to sort of uh, get into, it. and uh, also just. There's so much um chaos at the moment going on within people. Um, I always believe that, you know, essentially what speech is and what writing is, is us choosing mm. to um try to tease out or to articulate the chaos. And as individuals, what we do is we hold on to that chaos inside and we let little bits little bits out occasionally. Yeah. But most of the time we're structuring it and I think that's where my my next sort of like uh, exploration of the art form, the craft of writing and directing, and whatnot, is going. It's looking at chaotic individuals and trying to see how they communicate to each other.
0: Great. Well, how about this? How about we'll give it a few months and I'll bring you back. Yeah. And we'll we'll get an update. We'll get an from update bu- from both of us. Okay, <laughs> let's do that then. let's do that. It'll keep us on track. Yeah. All right? yeah, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> all right, Mikey. Well. Look after yourself and we'll talk soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on board. No worries, buddy. No worries.